hear me? Yeah, good morning. And just so many things to be thankful for, especially for Pastor Roger. Thank you for taking my son, your son, yourself, to be at a camp with uh, just uh, a lot of the younger people sleeping in a cabin with 12 other young boys who make uh, all kinds of different sounds. Uh, So thank you for doing that, Pastor Roger. Uh, And just an awesome thank you to the Lord for giving us the birth of our new baby girl yesterday. So that was very exciting. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, many of you have inquired as to how to pronounce her name. Her, now, her name is pronounced not Seal Ban as it's, it's kind of spelled. It's Siobhan. Okay, so Siobhan, short for Shivy. Um, if we spelled it phonetically, like S-H-I-V-A-N, something like that, it would be an Indian god, and we just didn't want that. Okay, so her actual spelling of her name means God is gracious. Her mother's doing well. Uh, she's healing very well. Uh, and the pregnancy went well. Um, she had an epidural, and good, better. She had an epidural, and so she felt very little pain. This was the first time she had it, and it was just a, a lot better for her. I did encourage her that this doesn't mean it leaves open for six, seven, or eight. Okay. <laughs> so thank you for all your prayers. They worked, and they're working well. So we really appreciate that, and we extend our just thankfulness to the Lord in that. Currently, we were continuing our study in the qualities of a biblical elder. Sorry, I'm just trying to fix this. Better? Is that good? Oh, so I'll just keep going. Currently, we are continuing our studies of uh, the qualities of a biblical elder. These were characteristics of individuals that God wanted leading his church, and he gave us the gold standard, by telling us 15 different characteristics, 15 different qualifications that are expected out of his biblical leaders. And we learn them as a.k.a. pastors, a.k.a. elders, a.k.a. overseers. Now, of course, while this applies to leaders, we as representatives of Christ, we as Christians, should desire to model these same characteristics. We were specifically looking at Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, and a few months ago, we learned of three of those characteristics. Those were three, excuse me, Hello? Is that better? Okay. (laughs) Hopefully no static this time. Okay, so we were looking specifically at Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. And a few months ago, we learned about three of those qualifications. Those were three relationship requirements. Last week, we looked at five of what I call the easiest, quote-unquote, biblical characteristics of leadership. And those were not to be selfish, not to be bitter, not to be intoxicated, violent, or greedy. In a very practical way, I call them easiest, quote-unquote, was because these were characteristics that God told us not to do. 
right? We had to stay away from it. We had to abstain from doing these things. It, was a, it takes a lot less effort to not do something than to actually do it. This week, we look into what I call, in contrast, some of the simplest but now, quote-unquote, hardest characteristics of biblical leadership, the hardest characteristics. And why I'm calling them the hardest is because now we are here required to actually take action. We're required to use uh, energy. We're required to make an effort. And specifically, they require you to open up yourselves, your heart, your mind, and for some of you, even your home to some people that you may not like, to some people you may not feel comfortable with, or to some people that you may not even know. For others, it requires you to get out of your comfort zone and to interact with people. And this, I believe, is actually increase, this is made increasingly difficult because of the time period in which we live in. There's a danger that has crept up. The development of social media, the development of technology and phones, and these type of things in general have taken away this interaction with people, this face-to-face contact that we have usually with each other, I do believe that it makes it harder for us because of the advent of technology. You know, we have the world basically at our fingertips. We are connected more than ever, and yet people continue to feel either depressed, isolated, or even sad. You know, you go on Facebook or Twitter, you look at a few pictures of someone, you feel that you got caught up, you make a comment, and we call that socializing. At the click of a button, you're able to watch a movie a video clip, or TV without commercials. We're able to do these things, and we think that we can substitute this for the human interaction, the human connection, and we think that this is enough. With the advent of apps like DoorDash, you don't have to go out, talk to people, and order things. You don't have to get orders wrong and try to fix what's going on. You don't have to be that person who orders the hamburger and takes away everything. With the advent of texting, we don't have to hold conversations anymore with people face-to-face, right? So we don't have to endure awkward silences or even learn how to continue a conversation, look people in the eye. With the advent of cell phones, we can just go on Zoom or BlueJeans or Microsoft Teams, and we don't even have to leave our house. We don't have to comb our hairs, take a shower, although you should still take a shower, get dressed, all because it's inconvenient or uncomfortable. We don't have to make any type of effort whatsoever. And now, as you've heard, with the advent of virtual reality, it slowly tempts us. It takes us away from even enjoying the outside things that God has created. It, takes, it, it, it promises that you can maybe even experience Yosemite or Paris, the Eiffel Tower, or maybe even a church service without even having to go there. You can do it virtually. The biblical hard characteristics today that we're going to look at are harder more than ever, and I would even say than in any other generation because of the advent of technology. Technology is amazing. I use it. I'm very thankful for it. But I do believe that it has slowly removed our Christian interaction with one another that these qualifications do require and has distracted us from pursuing the good things from being involved with people and slowly disengaged our minds into thinking about the world all around us. So today, let us begin to take back what God has designed for his people and his church and his leaders 
and to pursue these difficult characteristics with the power of the Holy Spirit. We were in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. And please turn with me there. I'll read 5 through 9 for context. And our focus will be on the seven words in verse 8. So Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, New American Standard Version. Follow along as I read. For this reason, I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believed, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, we learned this last week, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain. And this is our text for today, these next seven words, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Today, we will look at the hardest characteristics of biblical leadership, and we will look at three of them. The first is to be welcoming, to be welcoming. So we take it from the text, but hospitable. We see the word but here. The but functions now as a contrast to the five previous not commands that we learned from last week, all right? So hospitality is the nature or the quality of receiving. It's welcoming people, right? Uh, Receiving, treating guests in a warm and friendly and a generous way. It's basically a concrete and a visible expression of how we express Christian love. Now, unfortunately, Christians and even some some Christian leaders are unaware that actual biblical hospitality is a requirement for pastoral leadership. Paul exhorts the Christians in Rome to pursue hospitality. Peter requires it as fervent love for others without complaining. And Hebrews shows it as a priority even in the midst of persecution. There's a basic misconception of hospitality. A lot of us think of it as inviting some people over, putting a few burgers on the grill, and just make sure they're, they're, clo- they're for your few friends and family, and we call it hospitality. A lot of husbands may just tout their wife and say, oh, she does a good job, she does everything for the household, and we call that hospitality. Now, certainly, out of concern for people's welfare, we do want to refresh people with food and drink if we can. It would be a little strange if we didn't offer something, uh, especially in this society. Our society revolves around meals, right? It revolves around food. Ever since I was little, I always did say that we as a society would collapse. We would actually cease to function if we didn't have the three meals in the day, not because of any type of like physical deficiency, assuming we didn't need food, but we wouldn't know how to like celebrate anniversaries. We wouldn't know how to go on a date, right? We'd just be talking to each other. There, there's no coffee. There's no breakfast for men's breakfast, right? But hospitality is more than just having some sort of cookout. There are two main ways that hospitality is shown in the Bible. And the first is toward fellow believers, The hospitable elder is one who opens up his life, and oftentimes it is one who opens up their home and uses it 
so that the word of God can flourish. It's a powerful demonstration when you go into someone's home or you understand someone's life and it provides a connectedness, right? You can see inside their home a flesh and blood togetherness in which deeper sharing can actually occur. Paul provides an amazing example of this at the end of Acts. At the end of Acts, Paul is arrested. He's under house arrest and he cannot leave his home. There's a guard there and there's a guard that circulates all the time. But amazingly, within these constraints, within these difficulties, Paul is still free to conduct his ministry, both in person, but also by letter. He writes letters. In spite of being trapped in his own home, in spite of being inconvenienced, Paul continues to carry on a ministry with people coming and going. At the end of Acts 28, Verse 30 through 31, it says that he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came, and here it comes, proclaiming the kingdom of God, teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. This is how Paul, in the heart of the Roman Empire, as he was being under house arrest, showed his hospitality. He had people at his home, and he declared and taught the gospel openly. There's another instance, and it's interesting enough, like these kind of are at the ends or beginnings of different chapters, and we don't think about it much. But in another instance in the New Testament, you see a really wonderful couple named Priscilla and Aquila. They helped numerous congregations. They, were, they worked side by side, ministering with other people to share the good news of the gospel, and they used their home for hospitality. They had become good friends with Paul. He stayed at their home during his first ministry, and get this, he stayed there for over a year and a half. Okay, so this was a Christian couple doing good, godly kingdom work together to help further the teaching of the gospel. Paul greets them, the churches of Asia send you greetings, Aquila and Priscilla, together with the church in their house send you hearty greetings to the Lord. You know, the early church used the home, homes of believers as hospitality, both for worship, so they were worshiping in these homes, and many other church activities. We know that in New Testament times, travel was often dangerous. Uh, If you wanted to stay at an inn, it was usually either evil, they were scarce, they were sometimes very expensive, expensive. And so the church believers would love and support one another by opening their homes. And if you have a home today, this is the example of how it can be done. I do believe that the perfect example of this is our small group leader homes. You know, Paul, Ray, Brandon, and Josh, they show hospitality when they're taking the time out of their schedule to make sure that they're digging into God's word. But equally as important are the homes that host these people, right? It takes work to clean up. It takes work to put chairs up. It takes work to create an environment in which we can have that free flow of discussion. So thank you to the people who opened their homes, Carol and Dennis and Agnes and Lewis and Pam and Paul and Kathy and Danny. Of course, Roger and Jenny for men and women's group. And these are not just for cookouts or maybe not just, I should say, not just for backyard bonanzas. But instead, these are opportunities like Paul, like Priscilla, like Aquila, where we can teach the Bible. We could pray together and encourage one another. 
And this is why it's so vitally important that we just don't come into church and then run out. Pastor Roger and I and all the deacons and the leadership here want you to be involved in these groups because this is where, through hospitality, meaningful relationships are built. You know, in 3 John, John addresses a man named Gaius, and he calls him a dear friend. Gaius is commended for his hospitality to traveling preachers of the gospel. I kind of actually maybe call these missionaries. So anyways, he's helping these people, traveling missionaries. And John commends him in verse 8 saying, Therefore, we ought to support such men so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. Fellow workers with the truth. When you offer your home to missionaries, to other people from the church for ministry-related needs, and I know some of you do host them, by hosting them, by feeding them, by taking care of them, you are participating in that ministry. The opposite of that is true. You give hospitality towards false teachers, to bad things, you participate in that ministry. In 2 John 10, it says that if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, biblical teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting for the one who gives him a greeting, participates in his evil deeds. The point of hospitality is both to show it to believers, but it's also to show it to strangers. Hospitality, this word combines two Greek words, brotherly love, strangers, okay? So hospitality is showing brotherly care to those who are not naturally part of of your circle. And this is where it might get uncomfortable or might feel uncomfortable for some of you. All Christians are called to this. Hebrews 13.2 says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Hospitality in the ancient world often included putting guests up overnight. This was hardest to do, and you think this is hard these days, but this was hardest to do, uh, during a time in which they experienced a lot of persecution. It was hard for them even during that time, right? So the Hebrews wouldn't know if when they were hosting a guest that if this person would be a spy or if this person would be another Christian being pursued by a spy. And in fact, Christ gives us a warning in Luke chapter 14, verses 12 through 14, of only entertaining the people that we know or even only entertaining rich people. And he says this, He went on to say who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return, and that will be your repayment. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of righteousness." Now, this passage should not be viewed as an absolute prohibition of inviting your friends or your family over for obviously a meal or even to talk about Christ. What Christ is using here is called hyperbole, and he's using extreme statements, exaggerated statements to make a point. If you only invite your closest friends, you only invite the people you like, or you only invite rich people, because you think in some way or another they're going to give something back to you, 
That act in itself is not the highest form of spiritual hospitality, right? We have a duty to show hospitality to, pe- to people who are outside of our circles and especially to people who don't know who God, who God is. There's a lot of people, and I, and I hope this is the case in your homes, outside the church that are exposed to the gospel because they come into your homes, they see how you live your life and how you will talk about or how you think about the Lord. So do you show interest in people, both inside and outside the church? Do you labor to make people feel welcome and loved? And some uh, have asked me, so what does this actually look like, Chris? Right, what's the example of this? Turn with me to Genesis 18, verses 2 through 8. Genesis 18, verses 2 through 8, and I'll show you what Abraham does when he interacts with three strangers. Genesis 18, verses 2 through 8. I'm going to read from the New American Standard Version, as we always do here. So when he lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him, and when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to earth. Okay, so what's the first thing he does in his hospitality? He greets them. He doesn't just walk. He's running to greet them. And he said, my Lord. So now we may have an indication that he understands God is here. So if he thinks he's entertaining God or the Lord, it's okay. We can model that, okay? So my Lord, if now I have found favor in your sight, please do not pass your servant by. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet. He's giving him water to, uh, water to wash his feet and to rest yourselves under the tree. And now he gives them an opportunity. I will bring a piece of bread that you may refresh yourselves. After that, you may go on, says you have visited your servant. And they said, so do as you have said. Verse 6. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, quickly, prepare, prepare three measures of fine flour, knead it, and make bread cakes. So now he's getting some of the finest flour. He wants to make something for them. Abraham also ran to the herd and took a tender and choice calf. Now he's getting the good stuff, the meat, right? He's not being shy with how he's showing his hospitality and gave it to the servant, and he hurried to prepare it. He took curds, verse 8, and milk and the calf which he had prepared and placed it before them. So now he's also giving them milk. And he was standing by them under the tree as they ate. And I want to say that he was waiting on them. He was their waiter. What an incredible vision, a view of hospitality that Abraham displays to these three strangers. And many of you have done this. You've opened your homes. You've provided places to sleep, sleep sometimes for weeks or even a month, couple months at a time. You've provided meals on wheels. You continue to pray. Look, we're all Christians here. If you're uncomfortable with doing this, let's have an understanding with one another. Our homes don't have to be the cleanest all the time. Let's be loving of that. Our food doesn't have to be the fanciest. We just want to be together. You don't have to break out the china for me, okay? You can use paper plates. It's okay. Back in the day, I'm almost sure that the places that they live in were made out of huts. They were dusty. They were dirty. They killed probably the calf outside, and there might have been some blood. So it's okay. There are, of course, certain seasons where maybe it'll be a little bit harder for us to do this, but the key is that we don't stop this. We continue this hospitality. Back in the day, churches, one another, helped each other out. This is a shameless plug to help, and we can do this 
by participating in our HELPS ministry. Where's Keith? There's Keith. <laughs> Keith is the head of our HELPS team, but I do believe that this is a modern-day version of being able to show the hospitality to one another. We have so many people with so many skills, handymen, nurses, biblical scholars, biologists, government agencies, even we know people who have worked in passport and social security offices, architects, wills and trusts, optometrists, hairstylists, makeup artists, makeup artists, an army of mothers who know how to care for kids, for parents who have gone through some of the most difficult circumstances. And in so many ways, we help each other out in that to show hospitality. It's an absolutely huge, amazing impact, but we can do that even further when you extend this help to strangers, to the people you may not as know, and we should use that to, together so that we, for the sake of the gospel, can be able to be, proclaim it, but also to reach out to those people. Please use one another, use me, use us, so that we can do this together. So may our homes, all pastors and elders and Christians, our kitchens, our living rooms, our efforts, be used frequently for witnessing, evangelizing, for discipleship, by heeding the instruction, be welcoming, be hospitable. So the second hardest characteristic is to be virtuous, be virtuous. We get this from the text, loving what is good. An elder must love what is gr- good. And this phrase only appears in Titus 1.8. An elder is identified as one who willingly and with self-denial does good or is kind. Okay, he's ready to do what is beneficial to other people. One of the identifying characteristics of a child of God is that he hates darkness and loves the light. A good man loves what is good out of Proverbs. An evil man loves what is evil. Leaders as lovers of good see the world with a realistic, but they're always hopeful. Okay, with hopeful eyes and can spot and point out good even as they see sin, even as they see rejection, even as they see a deterioration of the world because they know that good is coming. It's only a matter of time. So not pursuing, and the key is here is we're not just pursuing good. The verb here is to love good because whatever a man loves to do, that's usually the thing that he or she pursues to love and labor for good. So how do we discern what is good, right? These days, it's kind of difficult to understand, quote, unquote, what is good. The ultimate standard of good is God, okay? So anything good must be consistent with God's nature. The goodness, God's goodness is abundant. That's out of Exodus. His goodness is always with us, out of Psalm 23. Everything good comes from the Lord, James 1. He fills our hungry souls with good things. He is good, does good, and gives good gifts to his children. Because God is good, he's always going to act in alignment with his character, and that's how we should be. So whatever he loves, we should love. Whatever he doesn't like or hates, we should hate as well. If he commands something, we should listen. This is good. It is consistent with his character. And there's just several examples to this, okay? In Genesis, we see seven instances right from the beginning. As he creates the world, he says, he spoke the light into existence. He declared it to be good. 
He separated the water from the land. He called that good. He created plant life. Uh, Light lit the earth, spread the night day and night, created animals to populate the water and the air, populated the lands with animals and insects, all good. And then finally on the seventh day, creates humans. And this becomes the, the, the height, the capstone, his creation made in his image. And he doesn't just say it's good. He says it's very good. So as we continue to go outside and see these things, we celebrate that he creates them. That's a good thing. Another example that is that if you're a Christian, you know that the pages of life continue to turn. You know that as you live each day, God reveals more and more about your life. As a Christian, you know that everything is working together for good. Because Romans 8.28 says that all things work together for good. All things causes things work together for good to those, who are, to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. These are good things. God disciplines us. That's a good thing. Hebrews 12.10, when we see God's mercy every day, he doesn't rain down fire and brimstone for the sin that we deserve. His mercy is good. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his mercy endures forever. So, lovers of good are eager to do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. And oftentimes, we love what is good both inside the church and outside of the church. So, inside the church, what are some of the things that actually God loves to see? Sing to the Lord. So, worship, proclaiming his salvation day after day, declaring his glory among the nations, the fellowship of the saints. You have to ask yourself as you sit there, do you love these things? Do you love the attention given to the public reading of Scripture or to the exhortation and the meditation of God's Word, to communion, which we'll have later today, to prayer, to the salvation, to baptism? Do we look forward to these things? I do understand that sometimes we come into church, we may do these things because it's just the right thing to do, or maybe it's the thing that we've been doing. And I know that sometimes we feel a little apathetic about that. But the verb here is to love these things, to have the desire for these things. This is an indication of faithfulness to God. And if you don't, well, good. No pun intended. But good. We can recognize it and see what is taking away our love from these things in the Word, right? What is taking away our desire to want to see or go to church or hear God's Word before anything else? Outside the church, what is considered good? Raising up children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Feeding the poor, helping widows, loving our enemies, we learned last week, doing good to those who hate you. Being able to understand and know the truth, these things are good. And here's a working definition if, if you want to jot it down. And if you always want to go back to some sort of definition, Philippians 4, 8, Paul lists good things to dwell on. Whatever's true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellent and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Interestingly, again, I... I do sometimes go to the negative, but the negative of this is called aphiligatos, and it's found in 2 Timothy 3.3. When you look at how the Bible 
refers to people in the last days. It identifies specific characteristics of people in the last days. One of the characteristics is that they are not lovers of good. They do not love good. They will hate God. They won't want to be told what to do, how to live their lives, what to do with their bodies. Sound familiar? You know, in Philippians 4.8, he identifies whatever is true. Today, we love the truth. They don't want to know the truth. They may even question the truth. And today, it certainly sounds scary when we can't even define the truth of what a boy or a girl is fundamentally. Sound familiar, right? They will have the tenacity and to nerve to not only think, to question God, not in a curious type of way, but they will do it in a how could you, how dare you type of way. If God is good, how can he take my baby away? If he's so good, why would he allow bad things to happen? This is extremely arrogant. This is extremely prideful with a God who has loved and created us. Again, I'm not saying to ask these questions, that you can't ask these questions in, in a curious or a wondering way to know about God more, but really in a prideful way is when you have a problem. These things are not good. The goal for every Christian and a requirement for every pastor is that he be a lover of good. And so even if we go through life apathetically, let us take a step back, think about this. It does take work, and that's why it can be hard. It can be difficult, but we know that God continues to equip us in this command. This is the second characteristic. A third one is to be prudent, to be prudent. The text here is from the word sensible. Sensible. Sensible is translated similarly to the word prudent, and it describes a person who is basically sober-minded or cool-headed. The prudent person is in command of his mind, particularly as it relates to exercising good judgment or discretion, and sometimes we might refer to as having common sense. He has control of the things he thinks about and does. He doesn't allow circumstances around him, maybe immorality or foolishness. He doesn't allow those things to distract him, but instead gains but focuses his attention on what's going on in the Bible and instead avoids this type of foolishness. And one example of being sensible is shown in the story of a not-so-well-known uh, heroine, a young woman in the Bible named Abigail. So this is a story that involves David and Nabal and Abigail. David had just been anointed king. Well, well, he was supposed to be anointed king by the prophet Samuel. He hadn't become king yet. So now David is actually running away because King Saul is trying to kill him. Okay? So as he is running away, he comes over and he gets near the estate of Nabal and Abigail. Nabal's described as someone who's wealthy, who's someone who's rich, but also someone who's evil and foolish. In fact, did you know that the name Nabal means foolish? So if you have a kid, don't name your kid Nabal. That's a problem, right? In contrast, he's married to a woman named Abigail, and the Bible describes her as an intelligent and a beautiful woman. So to me, he's marrying out of his league, okay? So David knew about Nabal 
and Abigail. He comes over there. He's running from Saul. And as he does this, he sends his men to go ask Nabal, hey, I need some food and I need some shelter. This was not an unreasonable request. Nabal and Abigail, they knew David because at one point, David actually protected Nabal's shepherds. He protected them from attack. So as he goes and he says, hey, can you provide a little shelter and food for me? He expected his kindness to be repaid. This favor also wasn't really difficult for Nabal because Nabal was a rich guy. He was wealthy, so he could do this. But for some apparent reason, or no apparent reason actually, David refuses, uh, Nabal refuses David's request for food and shelter. So as the men come back, they tell David, and David becomes furious he becomes enraged. He had just lost, uh, mourned the loss of his spiritual mentor, Samuel. He's exhausted, he's hungry, and he explodes with rage at Nabal because of his lack of hospitality. He takes 400 men and starts to head towards Nabal and Abigail's estate. He wants to, so David wants to uproot Nabal's entire family. He wants to kill all of them. As he and his 400 men continue on this road, this is where lovely Abigail steps in. Abigail, in her prudence, in her sensibility, with cool-mindedness, her good judgment, learned of her husband's terrible behavior and of David's intentions, and loaded wine and bread and dates and fig cakes on her animals, she was determined to save her own family, her sons, her brothers, even her own foolish husband. She knew who David was, and the one he served, and without even telling her husband, she rushes out there. So here is this woman with her donkey, she has a bunch of food, and she's facing David with 400 men. They all have swords, and they all have a lot of rage and anger, and they want to kill someone. Here she is by herself with such boldness. And she sees David, plops down on the ground, faces, falls face before him, bowing herself to the ground. She delivers one of the most humble and heartfelt pleas for David to spare her husband's household. Her request, though, was not made because she was scared or wasn't made because she was angry at her husband. Rather, she admitted her husband was a fool, but in her sensibility, all right, she amazingly reminds David that his life was in the hands of God. His enemies would be destroyed because of God's justice, and his house would endure. So this is out of 1 Samuel 25, 9. Abigail says this to him. Should anyone rise up to pursue you and seek your life, then the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies he will sling out as from the hollow of a sling. Abigail had so much maturity and prudence when she uh, gave David the proper perspective. So what happens? Abigail's humble response turns David's heart, uh, turns away basically David's heart. He saw the error he was about to make. He himself had just recently actually spared King Saul's life. So he spared the life of the guy who was going to try to kill him. And he couldn't spare the life of the guy who just didn't provide some food and shelter. And David responds to Abigail with this. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you to me today. Abigail saved her husband, her son, her brother, and her nephews 
She also saves David to agree, right? To, who, who didn't even know that he needed the pro- proper perspective. She does this all without disparaging or discrediting her husband. Interestingly enough, she only asks at the end that, da- that uh, David remember her when God had fulfilled everything he had promised. And in fact, she does. Because after this is all done, Nabal, her husband, soon dies. And guess what? David takes Abigail as his wife, as his third wife, but as his wife as he becomes king. Okay? Abigail is one of the beautiful examples of a sober-minded woman in the Bible because she calmly and quickly took action to pacify David's anger and basically to protect her family. We can learn from this example. Having good judgment, sober-mindedness, implying to see things as they really are, right? To knowing yourself well, to understand how people see you and being able to interact with that. This has to do with actually disciplining your thoughts, your minds, so that they don't have excess one way or another. This is called for, leadership, for leaders in the church, but it is called for all of us as well. Some people say that it's also being in touch with reality. So some of few examples that I was thinking about include this. Being able to accept that maybe your mom or your dad is not a believer, even if you want them to be, even if you feel that they've been going to church for a long time, but you don't ever see any love for the church, you don't ever see any fruit in their life. Sometimes that is difficult to accept. Being able to accept that maybe inside you're actually harboring bitterness or unforgiveness to someone and you just are sweeping it on the rug and you don't want to deal with it. Being able to understand that sometimes God will be saying no to your requests and that he's asking you to continue to pray and pray and pray and maybe you're just refusing to accept his answer. Being prudent and sensible in the moment is sometimes hard because it requires us to think. It requires us to get out and think and deal with sometimes very difficult questions. Trying to find some difficult questions about the Bible, and there's that some that come up. Why does God allow evil? Is the Bible rela- uh, reliable? Why is Jesus the only way to heaven? Is the sin of homosexuality an outdated concept? Are science and faith incompatible? I bring these up because we need to be able to understand and tackle questions and not be afraid of them. Instead, to think critically about them so that we can appreciate our faith more, but also so that we can have proper, meaningful discussions with other people. Yes, in Christianity, there will be many times in which people will want to seek all the answers and the mysteries of the universe, and you will not have those things, and that is okay. But it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be taking the time to learn how to be sensible with one another and prudent and learn how deep our faith goes, learn how to defend the faith when we can. And this is why I do appreciate our fifth Sunday so much and the so much more time and effort that uh, Pastor Roger takes to answer these questions. He takes the time to sensibly teach us how to think about the world back and forth and to think about how the Bible can apply to the world. This, in this process, we are learning to become more sensible, okay? We're learning to become more prudent. And as we 
try to do this, I'm hopeful that in that effort, we will become more amazed at how, God, how much God really is. We can use it to defend our faith. Oh, very good. And oftentimes, this is hard. <laughs> it does take work, it takes energy, and it does take time to go to FOF classes. But in this, hopefully, it does grow more fun for us, and it grows just much deeper for us in our faith. The prudent elder is in control of his thoughts, knowing they motivate his actions. So may we, as a church, you know, as individuals, as Christians, and in our leaders, have the reputation in all of our neighborhoods, right, to be a place of refuge where we show people who we are by being welcoming, by being virtuous, and by being prudent. You know, back in the day, Christians needed each other. They supported one another. We needed each other. They supported one another in hospitality, in good deeds, and in sensibility. They needed much more than just a few hours on a Sunday morning, but they needed each other as lifelong partners, as commitments, with commitments to each other to support one another spiritually, thoughtfully, and in the Word of God in a society that is slowly convincing us into thinking that we can do it on our own or that our devices make us feel that that is enough for the human interaction or that being isolated is okay, our efforts to do these things are becoming harder and more difficult than ever. We have shorter attention spans. We have a constant need to be entertained. We get distracted in a way that people all of us simply cannot compete with. However, I do know that there will always be a need for the human interaction, and these three commands help us in that. It's because we are made in the image of God. We are inherently social creatures that cry out and that need a re- uh, require relationships. We are made for relationships both with God himself and with other people, You read through the entire Bible, all commands, all stories are absolutely applicable to this. It does take effort, it takes hard work, it takes energy, but God does promise us that he will prepare his people so that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. And that's out of 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. It is required of our leaders of our elders to model this behavior, but also for all of us for his flock to follow. Let us as a church welcome, love good, and be sensible to do these commands often and to take back the human interaction. When we do it more and more, when we practice just like anything, it becomes easier and easier with the Holy Spirit. All of which embodies the example of Christian love that bears all things, hopes all things, believes all things, endures all things. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, what a privilege it is to be able to come to you today and understand how your word has so deeply revealed itself to us in hospitality, in loving good deeds, in being able to be sensible and being able to be prudent. Thank you, Lord, for giving us the example just in so many different ways and how to be hospital and loving one another. Help us, Lord, to be able to open up our homes, our minds, and our spirit and use technology not for bad but for good. Help us, Lord, to be able to focus on what the needs of other people are, 
Help us, Lord, to see how we have skills in specific areas of our lives and to be able to use those so that you may be glorified and that the gospel may be reached amongst all people. We pray, Lord, that we would be lovers of all the good things that you have provided to us. We are so thankful for the truth. We are so thankful that you have defined for us what good is, and we don't have to wonder by every whim, by what someone feels, but that we know that the things that you provide for us are always good. Help us, Lord, to be sensible. Help us, Lord, even as the model in uh, Abigail, to understand how to have cool-mindedness, to practice sober-mindedness, to know how to be able to have good judgment, even in the midst when people are unreasonable or difficult. We pray, Lord, that as we model these characteristics, that you would be so glorified in how and what Uh, the reactions are in the people that we see. Thank you, Lord, for loving us and equipping us to do these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.